wherever you want to go. And uh, be sure, listen to me. I just did a little behind the scenes content for you just before I started the show today. Uh, a little secret stuff. This how we make, you know, the show kind of stuff. Uh, you can go and see that. It's going to be a Patreon. Patreon.com slash Dan Benjamin is a place to go. Give me a buck. Give me five bucks a month, whatever you think it's worth. I think 10 really, but if you only want to do five, that's fine. Uh, and be sure to like and subscribe right here on YouTube because when you like and when you subscribe, that tells YouTube to pay more attention to the show, which means they'll show it more in searches, which means more people will find it and that kind of thing. And you know, when I actually take the time to add those little tags uh, to the show, like about what I talked about and add descriptions, it gets like 10 times more views. Like the difference is, you know, I've got the few hundred people that watch live and then I've got the few hundred people that watch it later. And then when I put in a description, I get a few thousand people. So I need a producer if anyone out there wants to make a tiny little bit of money that uh, because, you know, no one supports the show on Patreon, so I can't afford to pay you very much, but I need a producer. So if anyone wants to like volunteer their time or get paid a little bit or maybe have a project that they want me to promote, I don't know. I need a little help. So anyway, there you go. Yeah, let's jump into the news, though, because there's some there's some stuff I want to tell you all about today. Um, the first thing is there is a Senate ruling that they, they were trying to there's this thing called the Democratic Relief Package. You probably heard about that, where they're trying to increase the minimum wage uh, to fifteen dollars. There's an article actually in Rolling Stone talking about this. Oh, by the way, all the notes will be at uh, danbenjamin.live. Just pick the latest episode and there's all the notes. Or if you subscribe as a podcast person. Uh, instead of watching it live, you'll see all of those in your feed. So uh, go check that out. But uh, this Democrat, it's a $1.9 trillion relief bill. But a decision by the Senate parliamentarian, as they call it, has thrown a monkey wrench in those plans. Elizabeth McDonough. What? That's your name. Don't play games with me, iPad. You, you make the sounds when I tell you to make the sounds. Uh, they said no, no. They said that uh, it's not going to be part of it, that uh, it will not pass the Senate with a simple majority, but that doesn't mean the minimum wage hike is gone uh, or dead, as they say, for 2021, but they're going to have to put it into a standalone bill. Uh, $15 an hour doesn't seem like that much money. Uh, I don't know, but what they're saying is that it's unlikely that a wage higher than $10 an hour can garner bipartisan support. And even that is not a safe bet. That sucks that minimum wage is so low in this country. It's uh, unbelievable to me and that there's so much opposition to it. Uh, that's just crazy. Oh, well, you remember what happened here in Texas, right? And I mentioned that uh, a lot of the plants and facilities were releasing extra pollutants. Well, now we know exactly or kind of exactly how much. 3.5 million pounds, they're saying, of extra pollutants were released during that uh, winter storm, uh, which is horrible because all the communities that are around those stations are already exposed to increased pollutants. And now they've got this. Uh, it's absolutely crazy. Uh, but that's what happened. So, you know, it's one of those things like whenever I was looking for a house back in the day, you know, you're driving around the neighborhood and you look at the power lines. You're like, I don't want to live like right on. You see the one house. There's always that one house that's like right under the power lines. You're like, maybe that's nothing. But Maybe it's, you know, hmm. doing something. Anyway, 
Uh, oh, here's something I've been wondering about for a long time. Fortunately, now there's finally an article in Healthline about it, but we got to intro Excuse our segment. Excuse me! I'm in need of medical attention! There we go. Uh, basically, the question is, how long does immunity last after you've actually had COVID-19 and recovered from it? Because there are a lot of people that have had it, and they, they think that they're immune. Well, they are immune. And there are a handful of studies that have been done about this that are just starting to come out right now. But basically, here's how immunity protection works, the, the way this article explains it and to the best of my ability to explain it to you. Antibodies, these are proteins that are circulating around in your blood, and these are the things that recognize foreign substances in the human body, uh, such as viruses, right? And they, then they neutralize them. That's what an antibody is. You hear people talk about antibodies. These are things that are floating around your bloodstream waiting to attack the thing that they know how to attack. And if you've been exposed to COVID-19 by having it or through a vaccination of some kind, the antibodies now know how to fight this off. So there are also something called helper T cells. These T cells recognize the pathogens. Killer T cells are the things that kill the pathogens and B cells make new antibodies anytime that you need them. So this is, this is how your immune system is working. Well, people who recover from COVID have been found to have all four of these components or components, as you say, uh, but specifics about what it means and how long the immunity response lasts, it's still not clear. And each of these studies that I've read uh, actually say something a little bit different. So the only way to really know is to track re-exposure. So you'd need to have the person identified as having COVID, what strain they have, see them get infected again, and look at how long that takes. And this is something that's kind of hard to do because you'd need to do it with a significant number of people to get real numbers because, of course, everyone's immune system is different and how they react is different. But there was a new study that was done in the journal uh, called Science, and unfortunately, I let my subscription to that uh, expire. Uh, but they're saying it can last as long as eight months. Eight months. That's pretty amazing. Um, according to Shane Crotty, PhD, he is a professor at the La Jolla Institute for Immunology in California. He co-led the study. Uh, his team measured all four components of immune memory in almost 200 people who had been exposed to the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine, which is what, or car, not vaccine, SARS-CoV-2, which is what causes COVID-19 and then recovered from it. And the researchers found that the four factors persisted for at least eight months. This is important because it shows that the body can remember COVID-19. It remembers having it. And then those memory B cells wake up and start making more antibodies. This is pretty cool. Before that study, uh, they said there was um, work that had been done that was showing that it remained for at least three months. But even if you have mild symptoms, even if you're one of the lucky people who don't have major symptoms from it, eight months potentially, and it could even go longer than that. Uh, in a different study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine, researchers in Iceland studied 1,107 people who had recovered from COVID-19 and then tested po positive for the antibodies. And over a four-month period, they found that those antibodies not didn't even go away. They didn't even decline. They were still there the same way that they were right after the people had recovered from it. Uh, so th then they announced that it could be at least five to seven months. And another team tested 30,000 people in Arizona shortly after the blood test was developed. And, uh, and they found the same results. So if you were unlucky enough to get COVID, now you're lucky enough to have antibodies and resistance to it that could last over eight months. They're saying it could be even longer. 
So that's pretty cool. Uh, next story Medic. about uh, coronavirus. This is one that I'm, I'm not talking about this as to present it to you as, uh, as news. I'm more uh, presenting it to you as maybe it's not true, but this is one of those situations where it might be coincidence. It might be a different factor. And I have a theory about this, but this is something that's been reported before, but most recently it's on ABC7 New ABC Seven News in New York, who's talking about this, saying the glasses wearers are less likely to get COVID, less likely to get it. This was a study out of India. It found that people who wear glasses are three times less likely to get the virus, and uh, and so researchers are suggesting that's because they are less likely to touch their eyes, which is a way that apparently you can get this infection. But at the same time, we're being told that you don't really get it from touching things, and that that's not the primary way that it is transmitted. I have my own theory. Now, a previous study that was conducted in China found that just 5% of those hospitalized with COVID wore glasses, 30% of the population wears glasses there. Uh, a study was conducted last summer in the Northern District of Kanpur Dihat. Am I saying that right? Name, it involved 304 patients ranging in age from 10 to 80 years old. Uh, all of them experienced coronavirus symptoms. 60 were considered long-time glasses wearers. And uh, it said that infection through the eyes is extremely rare, but they said droplets from the virus can easily go from the eyes to one's nose or mouth. Okay. I think all of these theories are wrong. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. All right, so the, here's my theory on this. Have you noticed that I wear glasses? Well, I'll tell you what, what I have to do. When I wear a mask... I have to spend a lot of extra time making sure that that guy fits underneath my glasses really tightly because if I don't, the glasses fog up and you look like a moron. And, you know, who wants to look like a moron? So instead, you put your mask on and you make sure it's really tight and really secure. What if it's that? What if it's just that? What if it's the fact that people who wear glasses have to spend extra time making sure that they're, they've got a really good fit on their mask. What if it's just that? Because I don't think it's touching your eyes. They keep telling us that surfaces are not how you're really, people are really getting COVID. And could you touch something and get it on there and then rub your eye? Yeah, I mean, that's how you get the flu, I think, a lot. And that's how you, you get the cold, for sure, is touching something and then touching your face. But I think it might be more about the breathing thing. So that's, that's my theory. Okay. Uh, so did you hear about this one? An Air Force contractor uh, stole no, no, 112 no, no, top secret documents and kept them at home. <laughs> yeah, um, they had top secret clearance and they pled guilty to illegally taking 2,500 pages of classified documents and he kept them in his house. The Department of Justice said Thursday his name is Isaac Vincent Kemp and he is 35 and he is from Fairborn, Ohio. Uh, he violated laws prohibiting the removal and retention of classified documents. He was working for the Air Force, U.S. Air Force National Air and Space Intelligence Center in Fairborn, and they are responsible for analyzing intelligence and the operations and weapons of foreign air and spaces. And uh, he was there as a contractor, but they don't explain what he was doing with them or why. Um, but he had received training on various occasions on how to safeguard classified material, but he still took 112 <laughs> classified documents home. They found them and uh, it was all top secret stuff. 
But what was he doing? They say they don't know. Um, they don't even know why he had them. And all of the stuff that he took was supposed to have been stored in like special and envi- highly classified environments, highly protected environments that he somehow escaped. And uh, but he had this isn't like he could have done it by accident. They say here in the article that he would have had to make a concerted effort to bypass security checkpoints in order to get him out of there. And uh, he just said, oh, I just took them home for storage. He gave authorities consent to search his laptop, his phone and his hard drive during their investigation and was very cooperative. But that's weird. What was he doing with them? Uh, oh, we've got to talk about a, a little bit of a Tiger Woods update here. He's been transferred to a new hospital in L.A. And uh, all of his fellow golfers are coming out saying, I hope that he's doing better. But now he has begun the recovery process. That's orthopedic care and recovery. And uh, here's a quote from Dr. Anish Mahajan, the chief medical officer and interim CEO at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. I talked about him before. He confirmed that he moved to another hospital about 20 miles away. And he says, on behalf of our staff, it was an honor to provide orthopedic trauma care to one of our generation's greatest athletes. And uh, he has what's called comminuted open fractures affecting both the upper and lower portions of the tibia and fibula bones. He had to have the rod put in. And now he has to have rehabilitation that could last a very, very long time. Uh, So we'll see what happens, but, you know, we wish him well. Stanford researchers have identified four causes for what they're calling Zoom fatigue and how to fix them. But of course, it's not just Zoom. It's all of the chat apps that we are now using because of COVID to work from home. And this I thought was really interesting. It was prompted by a recent boom in video conferencing. Professor Jeremy Balinson Balinson said uh, he is the founding director of the Stanford Virtual Human Interaction Lab or VHIL. He examined the psychological consequences of spending hours per day using Zoom and other ones. He says, just as Googling is something akin to a web search, the term Zooming has become ubiquitous and is now a verb. And they have invented this term Zoom fatigue. They say video conferencing is a good thing for remote communication, but just think about the medium. Just because you can use video doesn't mean you have to use video. And this is something I see a lot, uh, especially with Fireside. And as I'm working with partners and other people, they always want to Zoom. And I always think to myself, well, if it's just me and the other person, maybe it would be better to just have a phone call, an old-fashioned phone call. Why does it have to be a Zoom? Because when it's a Zoom, it means that I'm going to be sitting in front of the computer with a camera on and all that stuff. A phone call, you know, you can you could be mobile if you want. You can move around if you want. You don't have to worry. Your hair is perfect. So here's what they say. Four reasons why it is a problem. They say the first one is excessive amounts of close-up eye contact is highly intense. They say that both the amount of eye contact we engage in on video chats as well as uh, the size of faces on the screen is unnatural. (laughs) In a normal meeting, people will variously be looking at the speaker, taking notes, or looking elsewhere. But on Zoom calls, everyone is looking at everyone all the time. A listener is treated non-verbally like a speaker. So even if you don't speak once in the meeting, you're still looking at faces staring at you. And the amount of eye contact is dramatically increased. This creates things like social anxiety because people all all have phobias about speaking in public. Uh, And they say when you're standing up there and everybody's staring at you, that's a stressful experience. And then depending on the size of your monitor and whether you're using an external monitor or not, faces on video conferencing calls appear too large for comfort. In general, for most setups, it's a one-on-one conversation. 
Uh, but the face is uh, a size that stimulates personal space that you normally experience when you're with somebody intimately. How often is somebody's face this big right in front of you? Well, only in an intimate situation, typically. You're not going to be that unless you're a, an actor on a TV show where they stand really close to each other. Um, so that's kind of also weird. And our brains interpret that as an, oh, the second situation would be if somebody's really angry at you, where they get right up in your face, man. So it creates this kind of stress around this interaction. It's it's not natural. So what they recommend is taking zoom out of the full screen option, reducing the size of the zoom window relative to the monitor to minimize it, make them small. And they say, use an external keyboard so that you can kind of get further back from your screen. Of course, everyone's on a laptop. Uh, the second is that seeing yourself during a video chat constantly in real time is fatiguing because you see yourself in that little square and, uh, and they say that that's weird. It's taxing on us. It's stressful. There's lots of research that shows that there's negative emotional consequences to seeing yourself in a mirror, especially for extended periods of time, because we all fixate on ourselves. Oh, look at, look at my hairline is doing this thing, or I didn't do a good job of my, my collar is folded over, whatever. And so what they say is uh, turn your own uh, self view off, turn it off. You don't have to see it. Uh, once you make sure that you're properly framed in the video and you look right and your background's right, turn it off. You don't want to see yourself anymore. Um, the third reason, they say video chats dramatically reduce our usual mobility, right? Because if you're in an in-person conversation with someone or if you're talking on the phone, you can, just like I said before, you can walk around, you can move. You don't have to worry that you're sitting in a certain place in a certain position and people see you just the right way. You know, if you're sitting across from someone at a table at lunch, you get to stretch out, you sit back, you look around at things, maybe you walk together. Well, you can't do any of that. So what's the solution? They recommend that people think more about the room they're video conferencing in, where the camera's positioned. You know, again, they say use an external keyboard. It can create distance and flexibility. And of course, like we just said, turning the video camera off can give you that more sense of freedom, even if other people are looking at you. And the last one, they say the cognitive load is much higher in a video chat. Okay, so in regular face-to-face -face interaction, nonverbal communication is natural. You can look at the other person. You can see what they're doing naturally because they're comfortable. You can see, do they look bored? Are they yawning? They're making eye contact. Are they looking around? But humans have taken one of the most natural things in the world, which is an in-person conversation, and transformed it into something that requires a ton of thought, right? You've got to make sure your head is framed right in the center. You've got to make sure that you know, if you agree with them, you have to do this exaggerated nod or a big thumbs up like this because the little subtle cues aren't transferred over a Zoom chat that well. So again, that's additional cognitive load. That's why you feel really tired after a Zoom conference, right? And then gestures can mean different things in the context of a video. Uh, you know, if you look a, a glance to someone during an in-person meeting can mean very different than this sort of locked in grid where you want everyone to think that you're paying attention and locked in. So here's what they say. And I, I think you might even start seeing this. They say, give yourself an, what they call an audio only break. Here's the quote. This is not simply you turning off your camera to take a break from having to be non-verbally active, but also turning your body away from the screen so that for a few minutes, you're not smothered with gestures that are perceptually realistic, but socially meaningless. Uh, so this is a really great paper and it's a lot longer than what I've told you here, but I think this is interesting because, you know, I always have this focus on privacy and, uh, on interpersonal communication and how unnatural all of it is. I mean, one of the things that I try to do when I frame this shot here in the video 
a uh, little inside baseball stuff is I, I try to give you more of an expansive room. All the YouTube videos that I see, they're kind of focused you know, right here and, and you get maybe from here up to the person and then their head is sort of like larger than life. But like, I want you to see the space that I'm in, you know, I want you to get a feel for, for what's going on here. And yeah, I've got some keyboards and crap on the desk, but I think that that helps you guys get a feel for it. And then it's not just me kind of in that sort of, um, 1984 style of the, the big talking head. So I don't know, maybe that helps. Uh, Facebook launching an all out war on Apple's upcoming iPhone update. You probably heard about this. Uh, so basically in the coming weeks, Apple's new software for the phone and for the iPad, it's going to require that apps get explicit consent to track what people are doing on their phones for the purpose of sharing it with third parties. Facebook doesn't like that. Uh Oh, that's bad for Facebook, isn't it? Because it includes data about what apps are used and for how long, which websites you go to information about your location. Advertisers want this so that they can create a hyper-targeted personalized advertisement. And, uh, and, and of course, most customers don't want that, but Facebook certainly doesn't want it. So Tim Cook just tweeted this. He says, we believe users should have the choice over the data that's being collected about them and how it's used. Facebook can continue to track users across apps and websites as before. App tracking transparency in iOS 14 will just require that they ask for your permission first. And so here's what that dialog box looks like for those of you who are uh, tuning in with just audio. It says, allow Facebook to track your activities across other companies' apps and websites. And it says, here, in addition to other screens, Facebook can explain why users should allow tracking. So this is a chance for Facebook or whatever the other app is that their text would be in that spot. And you can either tap ask app not to track or allow. How many people do you think are going to click allow? Think about that for a second. My thought is nobody. And Facebook, of course, and Google too, and lots of others will hate this, won't they? Facebook says Apple is attempting to push free apps, which often sweep data up and feed it to advertisers to move to a subscription model. Apple, uh, of course, collects 30% of that, and people call that the Apple tax. But Facebook's director of privacy policy, Steve Satterfield, said that Apple's forthcoming alert is an attempt to undercut the business model used by Facebook and other ad-supported free apps. Quote, this discouragement, this is going uh, this is going to have a real impact on the internet as we know it, which is increasingly going to move to a paid experience. I call BS on this whole thing. I don't think that's what Apple's trying to do. I think they're legit trying to prevent jerks who want to do horrible stuff with our data from being jerks and doing horrible stuff with data. I'm not saying that, um, that that's Facebook or Google or whomever specifically. I'm saying, you know, if, you're, if your business model is collecting data about your users and selling that data, we as users probably don't like that. And we wish you would find another way to make money. And honestly, I would be much happier to pay for some kind of search engine that was as good as Google, for example. Uh, and I know we're talking more about Facebook here. I don't really use Facebook. But uh, search results that are as good as Google's, but without all the tracking and with all the privacy. Now, a lot of people are going to say, well, wait a minute. What about DuckDuckGo? DuckDuckGo is good. It's not as good as Google. In my experience, for most of the searches that I do, I'm doing a lot of software development searches. I'm looking up API stuff. I'm That's much better on Google. It's much better. Most of the stuff that I look for on Google, I get better results. DuckDuckGo is getting better, and I prefer it, and I do use it, and I love the DuckDuckGo browser on iOS and the privacy abil- uh, f- capabilities that are built into that. Wonderful stuff. 
but uh, I would love an option. You know, people are upset or thinking that it's silly that Twitter is doing this super follow thing where you have to pay to read a tweet. I would love, I would love to give Google my money directly for a perfectly private experience, but who knows, that'll never happen. Facebook uh, is also now planning to take on Siri with a Hey Hey Facebook voice activation feature. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? So, of course, we can interact with Siri that way now by calling out to it. But uh, what if Facebook wanted to do the same thing? Well, they're introducing a Hey Facebook wake word, but only for its own smart devices. You can't do that on your iOS device. It's uh, on these devices that they call a portal. They're basically tablets or what they're now calling smart displays. They're designed to be used at home, on a table, or on a desk. There's also the Oculus VR platform, which uh, Facebook owns. And uh, basically, they announced that uh, Oculus Quest users now have this hands-free experience when you're using the voice command, hey, Facebook, then you can say, take a screenshot or show me who's online and things like that. So that's pretty cool. You know, I have, and I hate to say this because I love Apple stuff. But I have a much, much better experience talking to, and I won't say her name here, but talking to the uh, lady in the tube from Amazon, much better experience getting information and asking questions to that device than I do with Siri. Uh, I wish there was a way that I could have that be the primary thing and have a wake word for that for my phone and have it be fully integrated. I just don't see Apple doing that at all. Well, there's a lot happening in the chat. Uh, so let's let's go back. I don't want to ignore you. Lori's got some things to say. Hold on. Wow. Okay. There's a lot of comments here. Um, boy. Okay. Um, Andy says, we generally don't turn on video at my day job, just occasionally. Um, Brian. Okay. Hold on. Alex says, the kind of fatigue everyone now gets of Zoom is what I always felt at jobs where I worked in an office. And I'll, I'll get to this in a second. Um uh, let's see. Okay. So Lori was saying, I disagree with all of this. I much prefer a day of zoom meetings over a hellish commute. My life is infinitely better working from home, more time, more energy. I'm eating healthier, more time for my kids. I could go on and on. Um, my company has handled the virtual meetings thing, right? We know pets and kids are going to pass by. So this brings up a really interesting point. And the point is something that I've said for many, many years. If you've ever listened to the show that I used to do called Quit, I did it for many, many, many years where I talked about how ineffective offices are, how going into an office is, is usually not what most of developers in technology especially need to be doing, how distracting it is, how bad open offices are. And, and, and the quote that used to come from my old boss when I was in very much the corporate stooge world, if I can't see you, you're not working. They used to say that all the time. I've always been a huge proponent of working where you want to work, working when you want to work, and working the way that you want to work. And the Zoom meetings are great. But those of you who are not experiencing Zoom fatigue, you're probably working in a regular job where maybe you have a meeting a day or every couple days or something like that where you're interacting with your office mates and maybe you've got a, and Lori, tell me if this is you, if this sounds like you or not, or maybe you have a team meeting once a week or something like that. Maybe you do it more. For me, I'm used to all of this video stuff and I don't get Zoom fatigue, but I know a lot of people have told me that they do. And those people are not doing one Zoom a day. They might be spending four to five hours a day using Zoom. But Lori, I think you're conflating two separate issues. And again, I, I'm not trying to um, to offend you or anything like that, but 
the one issue is for people who are required to do Zooms much of the day, throughout a lot of the day for all of their communication, and I know people who are in that role, kind of role right now, compared to the benefits of working from home. Those are two completely different things to me. I understand you may be saying that the trade-off is, well, if I have to do this Zoom thing, at least I can work from home and I'm more productive, et cetera. It's worth it. And I agree with you, it probably is worth it. But there are a lot of people, I saw people across the way, there's a, a girl that sits at a desk at her window downstairs across the, the breezeway here, um, or the atrium rather. And she's working in an office, but it's clear that a big part of her job is doing Zooms. You know how I know? Because her desk used to just be her in front of her computer and you'd see it as you walk by. And now she's got a ring light and she's actually got a mirror and she's got like other stuff set up. It's very clear that she's doing Zooms and she got that stuff to do the Zooms. In that article, they don't even talk about like, I've got these two huge lights here. Uh, if you've ever seen my setup, they're ginormous lights. They're like this big. You don't want to sit in front of these things for a long time. If you're doing Zoom calls five hours a day, like some of the people that I know, and you've got this ring light pointing at you, that's a whole other kind of fatigue. So um, Lori says, I work in marketing. I have meetings a few times a day. My coworker who does sales demos all day, yes, gets this fatigue. She got it in the office as well. Um, it's, you know, I still am a big proponent that people should be able to work where they want, when they want, and how they want. And if needing to be on Zooms, what, what I think is we don't need to do Zoom most of the time. How often do you really need video? You know, I think in a way video does help you connect with the other person. They're not just a disembodied voice in your ear, but do you need Zoom for every call? Do you need video for every call? When I was telecommuting many years ago, 10, 15 years ago, when telecommuting full-time was really weird and unusual, uh, I was on a team with a handful of other people. I think there were seven or eight of us. And we would often have a weekly phone call where we would hear what everyone else was doing and get a chance to share what we were working on. And then if we needed to have a smaller team meeting with just a few people, we would do that on the phone. We never had video conferencing for any of it. And it was just fine for me. I, I never missed the video part of it. But we would also go and play Halo as a team and that was fun. So you still felt like you were doing something. Uh, so there's other ways to get that camaraderie and that interconnection with people without just doing Zooms. That's uh, that's all I was trying to say. Um, and Andy says, Dan, is Lori actually real? I, I assume Lori is real. But then again, uh, maybe she's like, a, a, you know, a part of the simulation like all of us. So interesting note here. Uh, did you know that the butterflies, uh, specifically monarch butterflies, are be are suffering because of climate change and deforestation. Look at look at this beautiful picture of this monarch butterfly. Well, uh, 2020 was a bad year for them too. The population of monarch butterflies that migrated to Mexico to ride out the cold winter months fell 26% from a year earlier, according to a new report from Mexican government and the World Wildlife Fund. Basically, they said that uh, this decline. Okay, so during the spring and summer of 2020, wild weather in the southern United States killed milkweed blossoms. Those are what female monarch butterflies lay their eggs on. And so because those were reduced, the development of butterfly eggs and larvae was impacted. And that made a smaller uh, number of butterflies who were able to survive and then make the migration. But they say the butterfly isn't in danger of extinction uh, that in fact, uh, they're okay, but their migratory process uh, is at risk. 
And uh, they don't really know what to do about that. It's just something to be aware of. Okay. Now, friend of the show, uh, Todd Vaziri, he works, I think, can I even say where he works? Uh, Oh, and Brian says, butterflies in slow motion are creepy. They look like a wasp with giant wings. I don't know about y'all, but I'm super creeped out by butterflies and a thousand times more creeped out by moths. I don't like these guys. Everyone thinks that they're beautiful. They are. Their wings are beautiful, but they're still like these super creepy like insects. I don't want anywhere near me. Uh, Anyway, Todd, friend of the show, he tweeted out this. He said, what is your favorite absolutely not true piece of Hollywood trivia that the general public accepted as fact. For me, it's the insane idea that real hoverboards were used in Back to the Future Part 2 based on a joke made by Robert Zemeckis in a pre-release video. I'm going to show you this video. Action! And in the future, Marty finds out that things haven't changed that much. Hey, hey, hey! Hey! Little girl, listen. I need to borrow your hoverboard. The hoverboard is a board that hovers on magnetic energy and it works just like a skateboard except it doesn't have any wheels and you don't have to have any pavement to hover on. And they've been around for years. It's just that parents groups have not let the toy manufacturers make them and we got our hands on some and we put them in the movie. Okay. Action! All right, stop talking, Rob. So apparently Todd maybe believed this or not and so I tweeted back to him and I said someone actually believed this because I remember when this movie came out and I was a kid when it came out and I knew that that wasn't real and no one needed to tell me that it wasn't real but apparently maybe people believed it and I said to him someone actually believed this and he said yes he said uh, many people and I said like kids a lot of people that replied said uh, of course I was a kid and I believed it. I'm not talking about kids. I'm talking about adults that adults actually believe this. And a lot of people replied and said, yes, Ned says, uh, my mom did. She told me about seeing a clip of Fox riding one. I'd seen the promo sh- uh, show. So I knew what she was talking about, but she did not get the joke and took some convincing. And, uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of people who I think as adults did believe that hoverboards were real. But anyway, I love Todd and uh, and he's great. Now, the last thing I'm going to leave you with, it's the last thing I'm going to talk about today before we go into the weekend. You know, I've talked to you about deep fakes before and uh, I've, I've said that it's just a matter of time before there are so many deep fakes and creating deep fakes uh, becomes so easy that there will have to be a special way to prove that the person that you're seeing on video is actually the real person and not a deep fake. And I want to show you this one with Tom Cruise. Now, this is not Tom Cruise. This is a deep fake. You can tell that because physically his build is a bit different and his voice is good, but not perfect. But I'll tell you what, the first time I saw this, I thought this was Tom Cruise. Okay. And this is, these are amateur people doing this. These are not people who are intentionally trying to create propaganda or mislead you. These are just some amateur people having fun. So I'm going to show you this video and uh, tell me what you think of this. What's up, TikTok? You guys cool if I play some sports? This is not Tom Cruise. I love it. 
more for the audio experience. As much as the momentum. Hey, listen up, sports and TikTok fans. If you like what you're seeing, just wait till what's coming next. <laughs> I mean, that's pretty darn good. Um, and if you're creeped out by that, well, you should be because that's pretty creepy. It's look at this. I mean, that's Tom Cruise, right? Um, it doesn't take very much to do this. Again, these are amateur people who are doing this. These are not professionals. These are not people with supercomputers uh, or things in the cloud or anything like that. We're almost at the point where anyone who wanted to create real propaganda, really mislead the general population, are going to have all the tools that they need to do it very, very easily right at their fingertips. I don't know what the solution to this is. I think it's kind of cool on the one hand that this technology exists, but if this exists now and it's so easy for an amateur to do it, like that Willem Dafoe video that I uh, tweeted the other day, well, what if this technology's already been around for a while and already been in use for a while from other places? Think about that. Over the weekend, because I'm about done, I am Dan Benjamin. You can follow me at Dan Benjamin on Twitter, Instagram, here on YouTube, Periscope until it goes away and anywhere else. Uh, again, remember to like and subscribe and ring the little bell so you get notified when I start the show. And of course, those of you who are supporting me on Patreon, remember, this is how I make a living. And I love making this kind of content for you but I need to make money doing it. So head over to patreon.com slash Dan Benjamin. Give me a few bucks a month. You're saying this show's not worth a few bucks a month. Buy me one of these. That's all I'm asking you to do. Buy me one of those. Thanks for tuning in today. And uh, I hope you all have a great weekend. See you Monday.